The Axe of the Blood God. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, U.S. Gamer's official RPG podcast, where we satisfy our dark master by talking about all things related to the role-playing genre. Joining me today is our editor-in-chief, Jeremy Parrish. Uh, yeah, hi. So I was wondering about this dark master. That's actually uh, news to me. Am I, am I like binding a contract here that I didn't know about? Too late. Didn't you know that when you were slicing your finger and putting your blood on the contract that you were offering blood to the blood god? I sh- knew I shouldn't have cut veggies with that mandolin. An- analysis for the blood god, whatever you want to say. Also joining us today is my friend and roguelike expert, Steve Tramer. Hi, everybody. I'm Steve Tramer, and I'm cool with, you know, having made this dark pact with the blood god because I probably made it a while ago. Well, the blood god likes you too, Steve. Great. <laughs> Your pals. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're best friends. Today we're going to be talking about roguelikes, which is why I have Steve on the show. Um, it's been kind of a, a big week. It's actually been a big few years for roguelikes. Um, and this week, Jeremy wrote his gateway guide to roguelikes. And also, he posted his review for Etrian Mystery Dungeon, which we'll be getting to in a little bit. A few years back... Uh, Steve was on Active Time Babble, and actually that was my introduction to roguelikes. I knew next to nothing about the genre at that time, um, and I was educated about it. Um, now I feel like I have a much better handle on the genre, and that's partly because they're kind of everywhere now. Yeah, there's been this really weird explosion of them that happened, and a lot of that is actually due to Spelunky and... The roguelike like, as people call them, and the roguelikes. Yeah, dungeons, dungeons of Dreadmore and FTL. Quite a few more. Yeah, there's all over the place these days. Everybody seems to want to make one because they're very popular and because of the high degree of randomization, you get a lot of replayability out of them. Yeah, I think I think part of the appeal of the roguelike among indie developers is that, or, you know, games that have that sort of element to them is that it's a really great way for a small team of people to create a game with a lot of depth and a lot of replayability because there is so much randomization, like you said, that um, it kind of, you know, you're, you're sort of <clears throat> leaving the design of your game to a certain degree in the hands of the uh, the end user's random seed. So you basically sort of set up all the pieces and then your players get to knock them down again and again and again. Uh, so it's it's a really efficient way to go about designing a game in a lot of ways. If you you know if you have um, constrained manpower and want to get a lot of play value out of a game. Well, we'll be getting to the the kind of the explosion of roguelikes in recent years a little bit later. But I think before we do that, I think uh, it would be helpful to talk a little bit about what exactly a roguelike is for the people who for whatever reason, aren't familiar with the genre. So, Jeremy, could you quickly take us through a bit of the history and what constitutes an actual roguelike? Well, obviously, it's a game that's like Rogue. And what is Rogue? Um, well, back in <laughs> the dim and distant year of 1980, a man whose name I forgot because um, I didn't write it down... <clears throat> oh, well, I'll talk about those guys in a bit. <laughs> okay. 
created a game called Rogue, and um, there were there were like ultimately four people, two sort of the leads, and then two more that came on later and helped with the development of it. But the idea behind Rogue was really it was kind of um, to take advantage of the decentralized nature of academic computing, circa nineteen eighty. You know, um, computers, the, the microcomputer like we have today, where everyone owns their own system, owns their own laptop, owns a computer that they put in their pocket to make phone calls on. Like, that wasn't a thing, um, especially in universities. There were, you, you, if you went to a great university, you had access to really powerful computers, but they were the size of, you know, a room. And so to be able to access those systems, you would use dumb terminals throughout the campus, throughout the network. And basically, it was like a standalone keyboard and monitor that tapped into the main computer to the mainframe. And, you know, because of this sort of distributed computing system, um, the, the, the creators of Rogue sort of took advantage of that to create this game that people could play um, with these dumb terminals, which could only depict, you know, ASCII text. They didn't have graphical capabilities. Um, so they depicted this game world um, with sort of randomly generated dungeon layouts depicted with ones and zeros and letters and, uh, you know, ASCII symbols. And even though they weren't playing together on the network, um, a person who played this game could load it at any time. They would have their save file and they could load in uh, whichever terminal they were on when they logged onto their account. And then when they died in the dungeon, which would inevitably happen because it was a very difficult and very complex game, um, they would leave behind. Was that was that Rogue or was that NetHack actually? No, um, Net, NetHack introduced the Bones okay, file. Yeah. But I mean, I, I kind of consider the two. They're not the same game, but like you can't really talk about one without the other. NetHack was a much more elaborate and comprehensive version of Rogue. But Rogue was, you know, kind of the the original game that started things out, and then NetHack came along and made it even better and even more complex. But um, the the sort of defining traits of roguelikes are that everything is randomly generated in the game. That's not just the dungeon layouts, but it's where the monsters appear, where the monsters spawn. It's what shows up in terms of treasures and collectibles in each stage of the dungeon or each level of the dungeon. It's even what those things that you collect do. You have to identify the items and say, like, well, I found this mysterious weapon, but maybe it's cursed. Maybe, maybe this scroll is something that's good for me, but maybe it's something that's bad for me. So there's a sort of element of mystery. And once you identify an item, then you know what all items of that game are until you die. And when you die, everything gets reset to zero. Permanent death is a big part of Rogue and Rogue likes. So when your character dies, that's it. Like all the progress you made, all the levels you've built, all the items you found, all the monsters you've killed, everything is just wiped to zero. You start over from the beginning. So those are kind of the, the, the high level concepts behind Rogue. And, uh, from there, you know, the, the genre evolved quite a bit. But until until recently, it's always been sort of this really hardcore niche on consoles. And there's, there's sort of like a, a variant that's been popular, semi-popular in Japan for a long time. But it's not been until the past decade or so that the genre really started to gain traction in the mainstream here in the, in the U.S. Yeah, and again, a really big part of that was Spelunky, um, just because it popularized the terminology and then people started exploring these games that Derek Yu said was a really big influence on him. And in fact, for a long, long time throughout the 80s and 90s, there were a couple of commercial releases of um, Rogue, and they went totally bust. Like, the company that put them out 
um, which I believe was named Mastertronic. <laughs> uh, yeah, they were massive commercial failures. Um, and the, the core team of Rogue, because they actually kind of have an interesting history. Uh, one of them, Michael Toy, was a guy who his only credit that I could find was Rogue. Um, there's a guy named Glenn Witchman who worked on Rogue, and then he later went to Broderbund, where he did Mavis Beacon teaches typing for Which people is sort of who the remember that. Like of educational games. <laughs> yeah, in a lot of ways it is. Like he worked on a bunch of educational titles at Broderbund, and now he's at Zynga, and he works on games at Zynga. Which Aww. is so a- he's one of those old time developers that have gone up to the great social media giant in the sky. Yeah, which I think is really fascinating because there's a lot of aspects of rogue and roguelikes that are, I mean, they're really prevalent in free-to-play games now. Like, um, can talk about energy degradation and permanent death and, way, and ways people incentivize that now, too, which is weird. But energy the, degradation has been taken and turned to evil. Yeah, it has. But then there's a third guy, Ken Arnold, who, he has an incredibly fascinating history. He worked on Rogue and NetHack. He worked on the technology at Berkeley. Um, this was developed on the Berkeley campus in 1980 at on one of those giant mainframes that Jeremy was talking about. Um, he developed a whole bunch of stuff for those systems, and he later worked on the Java programming language and developed um, a lot of network infrastructure that was used initially to communicate between systems on the internet, like in the late 90s or uh, late 80s and early 90s. And basically everything that this guy has worked on from Rogue to a lot of the technology stack stuff, uh, because I'm a programmer, like I've pretty much worked with every single thing he's developed at some point, which is kind of a crazy thing. Indeed. So... One thing that I'm kind of wondering, what was your guys' kind of first roguelike? So, my first roguelike was was in my early teens, I think, and I owned a Mac. I was one of those kids. And there was this company, I can't remember exactly who it was, but they mailed out shareware CDs. And so they had a bunch of demos on them and stuff, but they also had some freeware games. And one of the things that they shipped on this CD that was a freeware game was Angband, which was briefly mentioned, but um, Angband is a roguelike which came a little later down the line like in the mid to late 80s, and it's much more focused on tactical moment-to-moment combat and moving through a very large dungeon than on item identification or on like the really weird stuff that NetHack has. Um, And I just I played that to death. Like, I played that game for, I don't even know how many months, um, up until the point where I had uh, a character that was, like, level 35 or level 36 out of a maximum cap of 50, and uh, I identified a potion in the game by using it, and it was a potion of death. So, my character was immediately perma-killed after I'd been playing that single game for the space of about three months. <laughs> And then I quit for, I don't know, seven or eight years. (laughs) But those games are, especially the really older ones, uh, Angband is much friendlier now. Um, They were super brutal. They were really, really rough. How about you, Jeremy? Well, you know, I I didn't play that many RPGs on my Mac. Um, 
But I did pick up a few of the PlayStation roguelikes, Torneco Last Hope and Chocobo's Mystery Dungeon and uh, Other Life Azure Dreams. Um, and I didn't really get them. Uh, I didn't give them much of a chance, in part because all the reviews of them said, these games are stupid, this is garbage, and I had a habit of just buying PlayStation RPGs, so I picked them up as a matter of course, but they were games that I played for like an hour and said, meh. So I didn't really give them much of a shot. And then uh, once I started working at 1up.com, um, I think, you know, once... I want to say it was in early 2004. It might have been later than that. I can't remember exactly when it came out. But um, I was assigned to review The Tower of Draga, or sorry, The Nightmare of Draga, which was part of the Mystery Dungeon series. It was co-developed by Chunsoft and Arika. Uh, who did, you know, like the Street Fighter EX games. So that was kind of weird. And I knew it was based on the Tower of Juraga, the the old Namco arcade game that was really popular in Japan. So, you know, because I had to review it and had to play it, although I sure didn't beat it, um, I played quite a bit of it. And after a while, it just kind of clicked with me. And it, it was really sort of the a non-optimal way to get involved in the genre because... Namco did a terrible job of localizing the game. Like, even the title, they didn't even bother to fully translate the title. In in the English version, it's Nightmare of Juraga Fushigi no Dungeon, which means Mystery Dungeon in Japanese. But they didn't bother to to translate the title from Japanese. Like, they just left it in the original Japanese, even though no one in America really knows what that means. What is a Fushigi no Dungeon? Um, and there was that same sort of lack of care throughout the entire game. Um, each of the levels in Nightmare of Draga had like two hints for secrets that were included in that level of the dungeon, but they didn't bother to localize those. They were just cut out. So like there's this really sort of deep extra element of the game that I didn't realize at the time, but I was completely missing out on because Namco was just like, eh, whatever. So they released this sort of half-hearted slapdash roguelike on PlayStation 2 that I'm sure like 20 people bought. But I played it, and, you know, after spending some time with it, I was like, wait a minute, this game is actually really cool. And around the same time, uh, we were doing a countdown of the the 50 most essential video games ever made, and a few people suggested Rogue. So I started looking into this franchise and this series and, and genre, and um, I started to gain an appreciation for it and, and started to appreciate how far back the roots went and what it was really all about. And I realized like this uh, nightmare of Juraga is actually kind of a bad example of the, the form, but um, that was really sort of the point at which I got not only into roguelikes, but just in dungeon crawlers in general, because there was something very satisfying about it. Uh, the, the, the high level of tension and the high level of challenge really, really appealed to me. So, you know, from there I branched out into stuff like, um, you know, like Etrian Odyssey that came a few years later and uh, just started to develop a greater, started to develop a greater appreciation for games that RPGs that are really more about just survival and mechanics than about story and about visuals and that sort of thing. So I kind of got into those, those deep crunchy RPGs backward from the way in which they were created. But you know, whatever works. And I think when Sharon the Wanderer came out on DS uh, in 2009, I want to say, 
that was a point at which I really said, okay, I like this genre. It's not ju- it wasn't just, you know, Nightmare of Draga and a couple of others that I've played since then. Like, when done well, this kind of game is really, really good. Really addictive. My first ever roguelike was, sadly, Pokemon Mystery Dungeon. <laughs> which do, I didn't even... Do you like roguelikes anyway, though? Not especially, though I'm not, though I'm not, you know, against the genre. Um, actually, one of my favorite games recently has been D- Darkest Dungeon, which is a roguelike. Uh-huh. Um, and I've really enjoyed that one. Uh, basically, I, th- I think it's because of the party-based combat. I like the way that the combat is structured. Um, it's less of what you would find from the average top-down roguelike. I love the atmosphere and the art. And I like the, the broader strategy of being willing to take a loss and lose out on a, a a good party member to achieve a broader objective. So it's still in early access and I'm kind of waiting for it to get out of early access, but it, it it's really grabbed my attention and I can't wait to play more. I, uh, as for Pokemon Mystery Dungeon, I could never really see the appeal. I know that you're not a big fan of them either, Jeremy. Just no, Pokemon Mystery Dungeon is pretty easy. Probably the worst roguelike I've played. Mm-hmm. Like all of those games completely miss the point and the appeal of, of the roguelike concept. I mean, there, there is some post game stuff, but you have to wade through like 30 hours of just pure tedium and boredom. And, uh, it's just not worth it. You can, you can get instant gratification in other games. So unless you're just like, I want to collect all the Pokemon in a game that's not actually Pokemon, then there's not really much going for those games. The writing was kind of cute. The writing? Yeah, no, it was, uh, well, I guess it was funny to see different Pokemon be given personalities, but Uh. um, other than that, and at one point I, I liked the art at one point, but then they went to kind of a 2.5D perspective with the most recent one and i actually did not like that so i uh i try i I did my best i I tried to give it the time a fair shake but it just bored me it's still not as bad as pokemon ranger but it's still pretty missable yeah i never played any of those games but it sounds like i'm not particularly missing anything the only the only mystery dungeon game i actually played was that sheer and the wanderer game on ds and that is a really fantastic like good introduction game yeah. yeah i remember you talked the first time I really heard about roguelikes um, was you going on about how amazing Sharon the Wanderer was, and I imagine that you introduced many people to the genre that day, Jeremy. Maybe. I don't know if any of them were actually listening, but I, I think Derek Yu has been a better ambassador than me. Um, and, you know, for my part, a lot of what I've learned about roguelikes has come through the work of John Harris, who used to have a column for uh, Gama Sutra called, or actually Games at Watch, which was a spinoff of Gama Sutra, called At Play. And he's just restarted that, I think, on his own blog pretty recently. No, yeah, either he restarted it on his own blog or he restarted it on Gama Sutra. But that news came out a couple of weeks ago that he's restarting that series, which is great because it's a yeah. really, really good in-depth look at what makes a good game of a roguelike. And he tends to focus more on traditional roguelikes. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's written a whole lot about the Mystery Dungeon games and about um, like weird mid-period rogue spinoffs that kind of went nowhere and the ancestors of NetHack and all kinds of just 
totally fascinating stuff. Um, and I'd actually kind of hope that he writes about the recent roguelike-like explosion after Spelunky. Yeah, that, 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 was, that was what inspired him to bring his column back is basically when he stopped, he was like, I've pretty much written all that there is to write about this genre, at least as far as I can write. But then, you know, after everything that's exploded over the past few years, he's like, wow, there's been a lot of change and a lot of evolution within this form of the games. So on the note of talking about Pokemon Mystery Dungeon as a bad roguelike, what makes a good roguelike? Tension, um, consequence, um, complexity. I mean, these are, these are elements. People, people sometimes call Dark Souls a uh, roguelike kind of game, which is completely wrong. But I did include it in my gateway guide as an edge case, just because the things that sort of make Dark Souls so appealing to so many people, the fact that there is just this sense of foreboding at every turn, something could go horribly wrong and you don't know what it's going to be. Like at any point, you could just be ruined. Um, and you really need to learn the ins and outs of the dungeon. Even though things in roguelikes are changing, there are certain rules that remain consistent and you need to learn what you can do, what your enemies can do, and what the things that you pick up in the environment can do to help turn the tide in your favor. Um, so that, that's to me, that kind of boils down to what makes a good roguelike. Um, you know, there are some, some variations, uh, you know, like Spelunky, I don't think it gets that tense because a game is probably like, you know, from start to finish is probably like 30 minutes. So if you lose some progress, it's not like Steve losing three months of three months of his life, it's losing <laughs> 30 minutes. And then you go back to the beginning, just like Super Mario brothers. Um, but you know, it's still a great roguelike variation because there's so much that can happen and it really does depend on you learning what the dungeon is about and what you can do, what you can get away with, what you can't get away with, with, and never ever letting down your guard, always paying attention because you never know when you're going to get sloppy and totally fail to overlook something at the edge of the screen that's going to shoot an arrow at you and kill you. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the things that makes a really good roguelike is that you're always learning something. If you're playing a roguelike and it's not you don't learn something every time that you die, you don't learn something every time you make a mistake there's some aspect of it that's poorly designed and that's really the most brilliant thing about Spelunky is that it's just this collection of all kinds of stuff that interacts with each other in interesting and fun ways and that's why people love it and it's the same principle behind NetHack which is a game that I don't really like that has... I think that it has something ridiculous like 30 to 50 player verbs. There are so many different things you can do with so many different mm -hmm. items in that game that the combinations are essentially endless. Um, and to the point where people actually like have to pretty much read a manual in order to begin playing the game in the first place, because otherwise it's massive choice paralysis. Um, but yeah, it's you want to be learning something, you want to be challenged... You like that there are consequences. And whether it's a game where you lose three months or 30 minutes, like loss of time is a consequence. But as long as you've learned something from playing that, then like it's fine. It's not like some checkpointed game where you lose 30 minutes. And what that means is you play through the exact same sequence of events and watch the same cutscene again at the end. So how can you learn from, how can you learn something if like pretty much everything is randomized? 
Well, because even though the contents themselves are randomized to a certain point, like there are consistent rules within the game. Like um, in a given game, a blue potion might always be something different, but the sort of potions that it could be is always a consistent set. Like you always know what you could get, or you get an idea of what you could get. And then maybe you can make educated guesses about, I got it at this point in the dungeon, or this enemy dropped it, or um, I threw it at another thing and this effect happened. And so that gives you information. And it's it's collective information that you gain over time just from playing the game. It's not like memorization or um, developing skills it necessarily because these are primarily turn-based games, at least the really classic ones. So it's about gaining this information and then internalizing it and then exploiting it to advance further the next time you play and then further and further and further until eventually you win. And these are incredibly hard games to win. Very few people do. Uh, NetHack, I think, is still the one that people can most consistently win just because there are so many strategy guides written for it. And they all describe these really good, really dominant strategies for the game where it's, if you get this thing and you use it in this way it ha- and it has this effect, then you want to do these things with it on this floor to this enemy. Because there are actually fixed elements of NetHack um, that make it much easier for people to handle in that regard. Like, you're guaranteed to get certain things on certain floors of the dungeon. Um, whereas in most roguelikes, it's, it's a total grab bag. You don't know what you're going to get when or where. So, Jeremy, you reviewed Etrian Mystery Dungeon earlier this week. Um, I'm curious, or you seemed pretty high on it, you seemed to really enjoy it. So how does that fit into the dichotomy of uh, the, the roguelike genre? Um, does it slide more to the hardcore? And what about it do you like in particular? So if you look at Etrian Mystery Dungeon as a classic roguelike, it's kind of a, fail- kind of a failure. It, it really breaks a lot of sort of fundamental rules of roguelikes being a Mystery Dungeon game. It doesn't have permanent death. Uh, If your party falls in combat, like all your party falls in combat, then you're taken back to the town. You don't lose your levels. You don't lose the skills you've built up. You lose some of your money. You lose the equipment you had in your inventory at the time. Um, But, you know, you're not totally boned. It's not like you have to start the game over all over uh, from the beginning. And, in fact, a big part of the game is... um, is sort of building this guild, just like Etrian Odyssey of, you know, dozens of characters. And um, you can only take four into a a dungeon at once, but you still want to have all these characters in reserve. And it's not like you lose a party member. So then you have to go to a different guild member. Like you can go back into the dungeon with your, your fallen characters um, and everyone kind of levels up at the same time. So, you know, in that regard, it's, it's not what a purist would want, but what I think is interesting about Etrian Mystery Dungeon is it really takes a good hard look at the two series that combine that, that were combined into it, which are Etrian Odyssey and Mystery Dungeon. And the creators really said, like, what makes Etrian Odyssey good? And, you know, one of the things that makes Etrian Odyssey good is that the entire concept is totally different than a roguelike. The entire concept of Etrian Odyssey is to go into a dungeon and to map out every extreme of it and to learn where every element of the dungeon is located. And that's fixed. That's consistent from game to game. So, you know, that's an interesting 
problem from a game design perspective. And the choice that they made was to give you the ability to lock down these randomized dungeons by building forts. So you can establish forts throughout the dungeons, except on, you know, certain restricted floors. But depending on the, the kind of fort you build, it gives you different abilities, but basically it locks down the layout of a dungeon within a certain zone. And the better the fort, the more of the dungeon it locks down. But there's a second function that the dungeons or the forts serve. <clears throat> and that's as a line of defense because you have like these super bosses who keep rising out of the depths to attack the main town. And if they go to the main town and they mess it up, then it knocks certain elements of the town out of commission. So maybe you can't buy armor for a while, or maybe you can't get stuff out of storage, which is a huge disadvantage. So forts allow you to sort of create these lines of defense against um, against the things that are coming out of the, the dungeons to attack the town, so you can repulse their attacks. So basically, there's just a lot of moving parts to this game. You have, you know your active party, you have the rest of the guild, you have forts, you have the town, you're developing the town, you're exploring the dungeons, you're completing side quests. It's very, you know, in a lot of ways, it's a very traditional RPG in that sense. Um, but, you know, you have kind of a real-time element of, of the creatures coming out of the dungeons, so you can't dawdle too much, which is, is always kind of a part of roguelikes. You have, you know, stamina, and that's something that, that carries over here, although it's not as big an element as it is in something like NetHack. But you still have this sort of real-time element where you can't dick around too long or you'll be in trouble. Um, and, you know, in addition to that, uh, what was I going to say? Um, yeah, you, you just have, you know, like finite money, finite resources. So you have to make hard decisions. Like, do you deck out your party in the best gear or do you put that money into developing the town so that you can buy better gear in the first place? Or do you put that money into forts so the, the DOEs, the, the monsters from the depths, can't come up and ruin your party or ruin the town? So it, it just it, it requires a lot of choices and a lot of decisions to be made. And to me, that's what makes it interesting. It, it really sort of strays away from both Etrian Odyssey and from the Mystery Dungeon genre, the series. But it does it in a sort of logical and consistent way that works on its own merits. So it's not, you know, it's not a pure roguelike, but it's a really interesting adaptation, kind of like FTL. FTL is not a true roguelike, but brings in enough of those elements that it's really interesting and fun in its own its own senses. Or, you know, even Spelunky is not a true roguelike, but it, it pulls on a lot of those elements. Wait, um, why is FTL not a true roguelike? I mean, well, it, has- it's, it has real-time... Yeah, it has real-time oh, elements. Um, I didn't realize turn-based. It had to be turn-based. It does. Yeah. <clears throat> That's actually one of the requirements. And some people oh. who are really super hardcore also demand that it be text-only. <laughs> like there are people kind of arbitrary. It, it is yeah. fairly arbitrary because so many of these games have really good graphical tile sets now, mm-hmm. and they make it so much easier to play some of them. But you know, that's that's just kind of nerd culture is sort of creating arbitrary definitions to gatekeep other people and, and block them out so that they can't be true fans like you. You know, it's that's just how people are. And Well, I actually think that's really interesting with the roguelike genre because there are so few people who are super into them in the first place. And now a lot of those people who are the standard bearers, like Derek Yu, um, they're trying to advance the form. Like, they're trying to bring the 
ideas of roguelikes to more people in a way that these games are more fun, more modern. They take a lot of inspiration, but they're not directly related to, and it's making for games that are really, really good. Um, and I mean, we can talk about recommendations in a little bit if you guys like, but there's some really incredible stuff coming out of just the, the very concepts of the roguelike that are getting adapted into these interesting new forms because it facilitates the sort of game that somebody's trying to make. Yeah, on that note, actually, would you recommend Etrian Mystery Dungeon to a first time or somebody who's not too familiar with roguelikes, Jeremy? I, I guess. I think there are other better entry points. Um, I, I think, you know, if, if you're a fan of Etrian Odyssey, which is probably a smaller subset of people that are into roguelikes these days, but, you know, if you're familiar with that series, then it's a really good way to sort of jump into that particular genre. Um, so there, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think it's a good game and I think you can enjoy it without, uh, necessarily, understanding either of the franchises it's based on honestly and you know i got into roguelikes because of nightmare of draga for god's sake so <laughs> you know if you if you have an inclination to enjoy that kind of game you could certainly do worse than entering mystery dungeon it's definitely not a pure roguelike like i said but you know maybe that would help make it more accessible for a newcomer and so I guess that's the, this is the part where we actually do recommend good entry points. So if I'm totally new and fresh to the roguelike genre, which seems unlikely these days, given how many games borrow those elements, where should I start? Where should I go for a true roguelike if I'm just getting started? So there's a couple of entry points. Um, so if you are a person who's familiar with, say, Final Fantasy V, there's an amazing ROM hack for it called Final Fantasy V Ancient Cave, um, which there's an English translation patch for now, which is very nice. It, it's super minimal. Um, but basically right. it takes maps and treasures from and classes from Final Fantasy V and randomizes them. And you travel down from basically level one monsters all the way to X death at the end. And it's a great fun. It's a really interesting take on the systems of Final Fantasy V, where if you know them, if you're familiar with them, it's a really new and fun way to experience them again. And it's I think it's a great introduction if you're familiar with that stuff already. How do they bounce out the, uh, the, the progression and that sort of thing? Do you progress really fast? So the progression is a, a little advanced. Um, like, you get more job points on a regular basis. Um, it does have some balance issues, and there are some games I've played of it where you get really bad class drops in, like, the first ten floors, and then you get totally screwed. But also, it's one of those games, it's a roguelike, where if you go from the very start to the very end, it's two, maybe two and a half hours. So it's not, like, a massive time commitment. So if you go through the first ten floors and that's 40 minutes of a game... It's not a huge deal if you have to start over. What about you, Jeremy? Um, if you want something that's very traditional, um, but still accessible, the best place to look is probably Dungeon Crawl Stone Soup, which is um, one of the more recently initiated classic roguelikes. Um, I think it got its start in like 2002, 2003, uh, compared to most of them that began in the 80s and 90s, like Engband and Adam and things like that. 
Um, and because of that, it's much more accessible. Like I think, you know, the, the creators had a chance to sort of learn from what people found frustrating and inaccessible about roguelikes and really sort of built stone soup to, uh, to answer those, those complaints without really watering down or compromising the game itself. I haven't played that much of it, but people speak very highly of it. So, you know, if, if you're looking for something very traditional, that's the place to go. I would actually recommend speaking as somebody who is more of a neophyte to the genre, uh, you should check out Darkest Dungeon just because, as I already mentioned, it's pretty attractive. Um, and it hits all of those points that you guys were talking about earlier about what constitutes a good roguelike. It really does tension really well. Um, as you're making your way through a, a given dungeon, praying that you're not going to run into an encounter that will really mess up your party, it mixes in, uh, the stat degradation really well by introducing the madness components so your characters will steadily go crazier and crazier as time goes on and so you're having to manage that component of it and it's it's just interesting uh it, it's spoken to me at least in a way that a lot of roguelikes never really have so as i already mentioned it's in early access right now uh go check it out uh so what i'm so I'm, what I'm kind of wondering from you guys right now is for those who have gotten into roguelikes and are kind of wanting to go to the next level, what do you guys consider kind of the essential roguelikes? NetHack. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm not a huge fan of NetHack um, myself, but like that's the big one. That's the one that people play. That's the one where there are kind of competitions for... There's like online leaderboards for it. Um, there are online servers where you can play it and they have ranking lists. They just came out with a new version of it. Like this is a game that's been in development now for I think about 30 years. Um, I th- and it was two weeks ago they came out with a new version that has a whole bunch of new stuff in it. This is a game that people are still actively developing and trying to put new stuff into even 30 years later, which is a really crazy thing to think about. Um, that one I'd say is certainly the most essential for fans of the genre, uh, if you've never experienced it. Um, and then, like, as far as the more modern stuff goes, absolutely spelunky. Like, I mean, that's really the flashpoint of the roguelike-like, bringing these concepts into kind of a more modern game style. Um, I'd and then say, there's... Um... I'd, I'd oh. say Share in the Wanderer is a really good place to, to look because it is kind of the, the best console centric adaptation of the roguelike genre. Um, it really retains a lot of the basic fundamental rules of the game while, while doing a few little things that sort of change the rules and make it friendlier. Like it has permanent death in the sense that when you die, the, char- the main character, Sharon goes back to the beginning with nothing. But you can slowly, over time, build up sort of the world that you travel through and create, like, storehouses and stuff so that you can kind of sock away better swords and stuff and get those out, you know, if you're really serious about taking a, a, a swing at the dungeon, um, you can sort of pull those things that you've slowly developed out and hope that that'll work for you. Of course, the... The sort of downside to that is that if you screw up and you've invested like multiple playthroughs in honing this one sword, um, you've lost that sword forever and everything that goes with it. So 
it, it has a lot of the risk reward and the, the sort of high level of expectation that makes the genre so good. So that's, that's one I'd highly recommend. Yeah, it's a, it's a surprisingly tactical game. And like the number of decisions that you have to make moment to moment about what you're going to choose to do and when you are going to choose to die and what you will be holding when you die. Like that's a really interesting game. I played, I don't know, 60, 70 hours of it. It's something that you can invest a lot of time in, even if you're very familiar with versions of roguelikes that are more advanced or more complicated or have more systems. Shirin the Wanderer is probably the best mystery dungeon game, like I would say, for the DS. Mm-hmm. So, so which, I mean, there are multiple versions of Shirin. Which one would you guys recommend? The DS one. Yeah, I mean, I if it had come to the US, I would recommend the Super NES one because it did a really interesting thing where it used its battery backup to save the game after every single action you took. So there was no way to scum the game at all. Like, everything you did was permanently etched into that game. They couldn't really do that on DS, uh, just because the the difference in uh, the, the save feature. But the DS is a really good um, alternate version, and it does have the additional feature where if you fall in the dungeon, you can send out a cry for help, and if someone logs on to the Nintendo Wi-Fi service, which of course doesn't work anymore, but um, back when that worked... There was always the chance that someone would say, oh, this guy fell in the dungeon, I'll go try to rescue them. And if they could reach you, then they could, you know, save your bacon. That's something that's built into Etrian Mystery Dungeon, where you can do that with your own guild members, which is pretty cool. Oh, they did that in Pokemon. They did that in Pokemon Mystery Dungeon as well. Yep. I I always used to be so confused, because I'd be going onto a Pokemon board or whatever, and somebody would be like, hey, I'm like sending out a cry for help in this dungeon. Could somebody help me? Somebody? Anybody? And I'd be like, no. Okay. <laughs> um, what, as get, getting back really quickly to good entry points for roguelikes. I, the other one that I really like is actually FTL, which I, we've already discussed about why it's not a quote true roguelike, but. Yeah, I'd call it an RTS roguelike hybrid, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, an RTS roguelike hybrid is. Pretty much Diablo, too, in a lot of ways, isn't it? Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so here's why I like it. First of all, um, I like the setting and the aesthetic. I like the idea of you piloting a spaceship and trying to complete a mission. I like, and I like how quickly it goes. So the average game of FTL can be finished in like two hours. Now, I've never finished it, but I've gotten all the way to the end where I'm fighting the enemy mothership. And unfortunately I've never finished it, but even when I lose like a couple hours to a, a particular run, I, it, it's never had me go, Oh God, I just want to give up on this game forever. But by the same token, like when you're like really deep in there and you got a, a really good running a run going, you're like, you, you start to feel like the tension and like that, that excitement of maybe I can do it. Maybe I can do it. I think I can do it. And then, you know, you get a volley of missiles hitting your shield, your drone generator. And then, uh, next thing you know, fires breaking out all over your ship and there are hull breaches and you've just lost your best character. And that's the end of that. Yeah. So I will say like my only real problem with FTL is that final boss battle is that 
it's such a massive difficulty ramp up from the rest of the game. By the way, that's exactly what happened to me on the final boss. In that game. I don't even know how many times the final boss has taken out a critical system, caused a hull breach, fires explode everywhere all over the ship, and then all my guys die. Like, that's a very common ending to FDL. It's part battle, too. It is. It's the only multiple part battle in the game, which is another thing that makes it really difficult to manage. Um, but yeah, it's certainly a game worth playing, and I mean, it's it's very cheap to begin with. It's something like $15, $20, and then it goes mm-hmm. on sale frequently. And it's a phenomenal mobile game. Like, it's, Oh, yeah. It's, the it's, iPad it's, interface for it is really great. Oh, it's, it's just amazing, because you would think that it just wouldn't work very well on, on iPad, but no, actually, like, it is super intuitive, and being able to use the pause function and everything, and set everything up to go, uh, it's just perfect for a plane ride. I really like it. Yeah, and in fact, the one time I did play it, I played it on a six-hour plane ride from takeoff to landing, so it's really good for that. I will absolutely vouch for FTL as an airplane game. On that note, I really gotta know, what was your most devastating death in a roguelike? For me, it was, in fact, having that phenomenal run looking like I was going to finally beat the final boss, and then having one missile get through to my drone generator, knock out my missile defense, uh, point defense, and then that was the end of me. I got nailed by a huge volley of missiles, hull breaches everywhere, oxygen gone, and I was dead. How about you guys? How about you, Steve? Just some roguelikes in general? I mean, yeah. I already mentioned it, potion of death after yes. three months of playing a yeah. game. And it was a stupid thing for me to do, too, because, oh, I've got this thing. I don't know what it is. That's oh, probably good. I'm just going to use it. Yeah, that's that's not something you do in a probably lot of those old games. not a good thing to do in a roguelike now. <laughs> no, it's actually safer to do in most roguelikes now, where it's sort of like, oh, I'll just play around and see what happens. But in a game where, at that time, that was still essentially a game from the late 80s. And those tend to be a little more unforgiving. I remember, I think it was a NetHack story, hearing about somebody putting on, like, boots of levitation or um, something to that effect, where they put them on and then they couldn't get them off again and ended up starving because they were flying. Yeah, you put on cursed boots of levitation and you aren't carrying food and you can't pick it up ever again, you will starve to death in NetHack. Um, Also, if you put on the boots of levitation too early, you will fly up into the heavens and be destroyed. (laughs) They're like, there are lots of crazy things that you can do in NetHack, like... Uh, touch a basilisk without wearing gloves. You can uh, be killed by a succubus that comes out of a kitchen sink. You can dump acid on yourself accidentally. Like, there's all kinds... Oh, man, I don't even, don't even get into it. There's, like, a dumbass <laughs> sequence of events that you can do to, to, like, summon a monster from the kitchen sink. And it's... Yeah, it's... NetHack is crazy weird. How about you, Jeremy? What's your most devastating death in a roguelike? Nothing jumps to mind immediately, but I mean, any time where I've been in a really tough battle against like the boss of the game or just a mid-boss or something, and I'm doing really well, and it kind of gets tense, and they they knock me down to that last little bit where I know, you know, it's now or never. Like it's going to be one of the two of us, and I do the wrong thing, and I lose. So, like, you know, there was a battle in, in Etrian Mystery Dungeon where I, I had a DOE boss on the ropes, uh, and then it kind of, like, started doing these super attacks where it was killing each character in my, in my party 
uh, in a, in a single hit. And it went after my weakest party, which was the party member, which was the character I was controlling. And, um, I was, you know, using that character to cast poison spells on it because that was doing a lot more damage than my physical attacks because poison's really strong in Edrian Odyssey. And I let it corner me and I was like, okay, what do I do now? Um, I guess I just hit it and hope for the best, which was really dumb because I had a uh, magic sigil in my inventory, which I could have used to blow it back across the room and give myself some breathing room. And in the time that it took for it to clear, you know, get back to me, it probably would have died from the poison damage uh, for each step it took. But I just, you know, panicked and forgot and made the wrong choice and ended up losing. So, yeah, it's just stuff like that, you know, where you you forget in the heat of the moment about all the tactical options you have at your hand. It's a it's a, it's a genre that really, despite being turn-based requires you to have a clear head and to take your time and don't let yourself get frazzled. God, that's happened to me more times than I can count in darkest dungeon where I'll be like, I'll be doing well, I'll be doing well. And then I'll get into an encounter, which I will kind of lose control of. And the next thing I know, like everybody is in really bad shape and bleeding. And I'm just thinking, and I can try to run away. I can try to make a tactical retreat, but something in my brain, like, will, will, I, I don't know, like flip and I'll go, I, I, if I could just beat this one encounter, I think that I can make it through. And then the next thing I know, um, I get critical, um, get hit down to death's door and then I bleed out and I've lost one of my best characters. And I'm like, if I had just retreated when I could have, why didn't I do that? But, yeah, the worst thing that you can absolutely do in a roguelike is lose your head when it comes to a party member. So I guess the final question that I have for you guys is, where do you see roguelikes going from here? Because, I mean, the genre has changed so much in just the few years since we first discussed them on, on Active Time Babble. Um, is, is it just going to become, keep going more mainstream or is this more of a, more of a fad with indie developers really latching on to stuff that you found in like Spelunky and Rogue Legacy and that kind of thing. I think the um, the growing popularity of games inspired by Rogue in the indie scene will inevitably bleed back into the AAA space because AAA game developers won't do anything that they don't know will be a success. But when they know something is successful and that there's an audience for it, then they're like, oh, we should do that. So you look at Spelunky and Binding of Isaac and just all the other games that have had success with procedural generation and things like that. And, you know, you look at the success that something like Dark Souls Bloodborne has, which kind of taps into that same tension difficulty level. I think you are going to see more mainstream developers, AAA developers, bring in certain elements of, of that genre, even if they don't go full on roguelike because that would make a difficult game and no one wants that because, you know, someone might be upset that you, you challenge them. Um, but I think they will, they will start to pick up certain elements and really start experimenting with how they can sort of take off the rough edges and, and tone down the difficulty a little bit to make it something that they can, you know, promote in a trailer at E3. Yeah, and I think that it's maybe it won't bleed over into AAA. Like I think that that 
you know, like maybe B tier games, um, which is what Demon's Souls initially was. No one expected that to become the thing it did, or or Dark Souls either. And those games are not necessarily influenced by Rogue, like you said, but they share a lot of similarities with it in terms of what a player gets out of it. Um, but just from the indie scene, I mean, people are basically saying, hey, what if we took a roguelike and then we did this thing? Or what if we start with a central conceit? What is a good way to demonstrate it? Oh, well, it's to use lots of randomly generated content and add unknowns to it. Um, and there's been a couple of games, like uh, there was one that was um, very well critically received uh, that came out of something called the Seven Day FPS Challenge called Receiver. Which is a, a game that doesn't really work as anything except for a roguelike, because it's all about a sequence of complicated interactions with a single item, and then giving you a place to explore what those are like. And the best way to do that is to just give you a space that's randomly generated with stuff that you can kind of guess how it works, but maybe not always. Um, and then... It likes a bunch of Kickstarter stuff too. Like Darkest Dungeon was a Kickstarter game. Um, FTL was a Kickstarter game. Um, there are some other high profile ones. Like I think there was one, uh, Flame in the Flood is described as a roguelike that came out of some former irrational guys. So I think that there's always going to be an audience for it. And I think that it's not going to be so much AAA as guys who kind of leave AAA and then want to create their own thing. This is a nice way for them to kind of plug into what's currently the zeitgeist and then eventually into an audience that just kind of enjoys all this stuff. It's definitely something that's here to stay, whether or not it's kind of a, a flash in the pan fad as far as like a mainstream thing. All right. What do you think? Please send me some feedback. You can find me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. You can leave a comment on our show notes over on usgamer.net or send me an email. I would love to hear your thoughts. Cat.bailey at usgamer.net. I may read your best responses on a future episode of Acts of the Blood God. Where can I find you guys? So, Jeremy, where can I find you? At usgamer.net and on Twitter at GameSpite. And how about you, Steve? Well, all right. And, of course, please go ahead and subscribe to our podcast, um, which you probably already have. But maybe you want to read, uh, rate and review our podcast over on iTunes. That would be really appreciative. You would like that very, very much. Until then, next time... You know, I can, I'm never sure what we're going to be talking about on this podcast next. Um, we ended up pushing back our thoughts on Xenoblade Chronicles a little bit, but you can look forward to that. And we also recently did an interview with the Path of Exile, uh, technical director. So you can look forward to that in a future episode as well. Until then, I've been Kat Bailey and thank you to Jeremy and thank you to Steve. And until next time, happy adventuring. Mm-hmm.